you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we meet Jessica Vandenberg, Assistant Dean of Engineering and Professional Engineer at the University of Alberta, and a survivor of the 60s scoop. Jessica is born from the Dene Ta First Nation and was raised in an inclusive German family in northern Alberta. Jessica will be presenting her talk, Walking in a Good Way, at the TEDxU Alberta Conference on May 7th, where she'll share her experiences working through difficult traumas while forming a highly esteemed career. Speaking very broadly, the 60s scoop refers to a period in Canada's history where mass numbers of Indigenous children were taken from their homes and families and placed in the child welfare system. The practice of removing Indigenous children from their communities had been in play long before this period, but the 60 Scoop notes the acceleration of Indigenous children's overrepresentation in the child welfare system, an issue that still continues today. This is just one part of a much larger history. Our correspondent, Danielle Parody, sat down with Jessica to learn about her journey and about how the 60 Scoop continues to impact survivors. Tansi, my name is Danielle Parody. I am a Métis. Uh, writer, journalist, storyteller, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Jessica Vandenberg. Uh, She's worked in the oil sands, mining, regulatory, infrastructure, and consulting industries. She is an engineer, uh, a chemical engineer, and uh, she has worked in regulation. She's worked uh, with federal, provincial, and municipal governments, as well as First Nations, Métis settlements, and Métis nations, academics, institutions, and private industry. She's also a mother of two, uh, and an Indigenous female engineer. She's passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with truth and reconciliation. She's currently the Assistant Dean for Outreach and Industrial Professor of Indigenous Engineering for the University of Alberta Faculty of Engineering. Jessica's going to be talking about a TED Talk today, and we're going to do a deep dive into the 60s scoop and answer some questions about what needs to be done for reconciliation. Thank you. So, uh, Jessica, would you would you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure, for sure. So, uh, my name's Jessica Vandenberg. My pronouns are she, her. I was born to the Dene Ta First Nation, um, and so... Both my parents were residential school survivors, uh, and I'm what's called a 60-scoop survivor. So I was put into the foster adoption system. I was adopted by a very inclusive German family. Um, we um, grew up on a couple of different farms in the Peace River area, north of Grand Prairie. So very small town, growing up in a, in a very different type of environment than a lot of our urban populations are used to. Um, but because of a... Um, engineering talk in our chemistry class, I decided to go off and take engineering as a degree at the university. So I went through the Grand Prairie Regional College, 
uh, came to the University of Alberta through a transfer program and completed a bachelor's in chemical engineering, computer process control with the co-op program. And it led me to a master's degree. So I did a master's that's joint between chemical and mining engineering. Um, and then I w went off to work in industry for a variety of different positions. So for 10 years, I was a senior research engineer um, in the oil sands. During that time, I was blessed with two children. Um, so I have two kids that are currently 11 and 13, and they're my pride and joy, and they change, they change my world. So from wanting to contribute to the world of knowledge, I wanted to give back in service to others. So I joined the engineering regulator in the province of HEGA, the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta. Um, I was there for a variety of director positions. So director of um, outreach and product services for a number of years, and then director of enforcement and permits. Um, but during that time as a 60s scooper, I struggled with identity. I struggled with wanting to connect with culture, with imposter syndrome, walking in multiple worlds, but not quite feeling where I belong. So I wanted to explore that a little bit more, educate myself and um, figure it out. So I went off to become an Indigenous community consultant. So I worked directly with First Nations, Métis Settlements, Métis Nations on behalf of a professional consultancy firm. And um, it was an interesting journey um, meeting with elders and knowledge keepers and community members and chief and councils and um, just hearing the stories of Canada's oppressive history and reading everything that I could and listening to a lot of inspirational speakers and lived experience and um, reconnecting with my family and things like that, uh, becoming a blanket exercise facilitator, all these things. It took a pretty large emotional toll. Um, and with the downturn, I was actually laid off from that place, but I started my own consultancy firm, Guiding Star Consulting. Um, and then I took a position with the University of Alberta, where I currently am at. So I sit as the Assistant Dean Engineering Community Culture, the University of Alberta and the Faculty of Engineering. Um, but what I do now is walk in all of these worlds, and it's come to be a blessing that I have uh, the background in all these worlds and can act as, as this bridge. So um, in a nutshell, that's, that's a lot about me, but hopefully that gives you some context. It does. You mentioned that your uh, family that you were placed into was very inclusive, and you always knew that you were First Nations. Yes, very much. Um, my adopted family, again, is German heritage, so they're blonde and blue-eyed. It, it's pretty apparent visibly <laughs> that I don't look like them. Um, and so from early on, um, I, was, I knew that I was adopted. I was placed in one foster family before being adopted fully by the family that I grew up with. Um, and I was fortunate that this all happened at, um, before I was one year old. So I don't have a lot of memory on it. But of course, knowing what I know now about uh, intergenerational trauma and epigenetics and things like that, there are still pieces that were quite traumatizing. And during that time, the adoption um, system within the province of Alberta was very closed. So um, I couldn't find information about my heritage, the advice that was given to my family right or wrong was um, full disconnection from my heritage, right? So they didn't know anything about cultural teachings. They didn't know anything around these um, things. They were, um, they told me that my birth family was dead. Um, and so I grew up with this belief um, around that there was nothing there, right? Yet uh, wanting to, um, you're, you're, you're always plagued by questions, right? Like who were they? And, who am I and what pieces within me come from ancestors and, and you, you, you're curious about these things. And so working through identity, working through all this stuff is, is something that um, is 
I've learned to walk with in order to get to a place of whole and healed. Right? Yeah, I mean, um, when you grow up in a family where you know that you are different, um, imagine like looking in the mirror, wondering like what part of me is my mom? What part of me is my dad? For sure, definitely. And wondering, you know, once um, I grew older, it was shared with me that my family wasn't dead. <laughs> and then having to reconcile with that, to think, you know, there's a whole nation out there that could look like me or act like me or pieces of me are there. And do they think of me? And um, do I have a place there as well as where I am? And then struggling with the idea of, well, um, I don't want to dishonor the people who raised me in that family um, by seeking out another one. I think a lot about what the elders teach us around we are where we're meant to be. And the story of my birth family goes that, again, both my parents were residential school survivors. I was one of five siblings, so I was the middle one. I have an older brother and sister, younger brother and sister. Physically, I don't look like my sisters. Um, they're a lot shorter in stature, and I'm quite tall. Um, and parts of me always wonder, like, was I meant to be the one put into the foster adoption system? to walk in all these worlds and be resilient um, in the experiences that I have so I can come back and contribute in a different way uh, to the community and, and the family that I, that I was born into. That's beautiful. And so at what point in your life did you become interested in, in um, the way that, say, your own story of adoption uh, formed a larger narrative of what's going on in, in a place that we call Canada? So it really started with that journey to university. Um, growing up in a small town, uh, the exposure I had um, to things was, was a bit limited. I grew up in rural Alberta, which is quite conservative. Um, and so even though my family, I, I always felt part of my family in community, I didn't always feel part of community. Um, and the places that I grew up in, the schools that I were in, not that anybody directly, you know, took me out back and beat me up or anything like that. But, uh, you know, you're not invited to certain things or no one plays with you on the playground. And as a kid, you don't quite understand some of these ingrained systematic racist um, behaviors or stereotypes that exist or unconscious bias. You don't understand all of that. You just know that there's some part of you that everybody is rejecting for some reason that you don't know. Right. And it leads to a lot of questions around um, and denial of identity as well. Like I, I share this um, in a lot of the speaking that I do, but like I remember trying to rub the brown off my skin, right? And for a number of years, just being in denial of who I was, right? And that's not a good way to walk because it doesn't feel right. You don't quite feel yourself in the spaces that you walk in. And really um, this whole journey has led to a place of being able to walk um, proudly, peel off all those layers of shame, that I didn't even realize were piled on to get to a place where I can be proud of my heritage and, and still honor the family that raised me and um, walk in a place of authenticity. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about the 60s scoop, how, how do you explain it to people? So it was for me, how I explain it to people is that it was another tactic by um, the larger systems that we live in within Canada. Um, we know that they're founder of this country. And even before that, uh, the tenants were around um, conquest, less than human towards Indigenous people, treating like things rather than other people, conversion, 
um, trying to civilize the savage, you know, these things. And we hear Sir John A. MacDonald saying things like kill the Indian and the child, all these tactics to erase um, the, the culture of who a person is, right? If they're uh, of in First Nations, Métis, or Inuit. And so when residential school um, and horrific abuse didn't erase um, the identity of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, another tactic was 60 scoop. Um, was placement of um, kids into uh, Eurocentric homes, right? So not only were the tactics through the schools, then it was also through where you're growing up at home. And so that led to like physical distance from your home communities. Like we know, a lot of people know Chani Wenjak's story that of course um, inspired Gore Downey and the Tragically Hip and uh, the, the Chani Wenjak Foundation and all the work that they're doing for reconciliation. Um, the physical distance between kids and their home communities so that they don't run away and go back and all of this, right? So the 60th scoop to me was another tactic um, in the cultural genocide that the, the country engaged in actively at one point. I think when we, although there's growing awareness of the, of other aspects of genocide, like when we talk about the unmarked graves that are being found at residential schools and starting to reckon with why that is and um, and what happened at those schools. Um, and although Cindy Blackstock is out there being an absolute legend uh, and fighting for equity and in, in care, I haven't found that there's a good understanding of the 60s scoop and that disconnection. Um, so when you talk to people, um, do you find, are they familiar with this or, or have they not heard the stories of the 60s scoop before? I've heard that they haven't heard the stories. I mean, residential schools to people are becoming more familiar with the recoveries. Um, but there's so many different things that aren't talked about either, like uh, day schools, as well as the Indian hospitals, 60 scoop. There's a lot of things that are in all the systems, right, within our legal systems and education systems and government systems, funding systems, um, that just is indicators and data that shows the oppressiveness is um in, was intentional and is still active today yeah there there's so much i mean i i don't even say that people aren't aware in a way that blames them like it's it's a horrifying reality of what our past was and when the the stories that we have to reconcile with you know the the people that want to be people who identify as Canadians. It's, that's a task that requires a lot of self-reflection and healing on their part too. 100%. And that's the idea behind the calls to action is that it's for everybody, everybody on all sides of the table. You often hear people say we're all treaty people or we're all relations um, because it's an effort that's made by everybody. Um, everybody has to do the self-reflection, coming to terms with the truths of what are there um, trying to walk with no shame, blame, or guilt, um, or anger, or disgust, or sadness, or fear, and, and all these things, but instead walk with um, the seven sacred teachings, right? Walk with humility and honesty, um, courage, truth, respect, wisdom, um, love, like walk with these things. And it's only in that way that we'll get to a point of reconciliation. And in, in your own part, um you're doing a lot of work on the education side. And so I hear you actually have a TED Talk coming up. Yes, that's right. It's been quite an honor to be selected. And it's an interesting preparation process to get ready for the TED Talk. 
Oh, can you tell me a little bit about that? For sure. So I'm actually going to be the theme for this year's TED Talk um, hosted by the University of Alberta is light in the darkness. And so it's um, all the speakers are quite inspirational, motivational. And so what I'm going to talk to you is actually the seven sacred teachings and how I have um, learned to walk in a good way um, as, as I have been taught and how that has played into a place where um, I can be balanced and centered. I can be present um, and I can work towards continual healing um, of the things that have happened to me in the past, but also um, setting myself up for a, a good way in the future so I can do what I'm meant to do, which is serve others. It really strikes me. I mean, you were working as an engineer, you're working at APEGA as a regulator, so you were immensely successful at the top of your profession. Did something feel like it was missing that led you to this journey of, uh, of exploration? Definitely. Um, it was one of those things where um, I, at the time I felt quite unsettled and it took a, a lot of self-reflection to figure out why that was. Some of it was unresolved childhood trauma um, and my own diagnosis um, from doctors of complex PTSD for a number of things that happened. So some of it was um, not addressing the healing that needed to be done and then really coming to terms with that. But then really also thinking around um, what success means to me and letting go of wanting to define it by uh, the corporate capitalistic definition. And actually I talked about that in the talk itself, um, talking around that you know, I, I did get, get caught up at one point of wanting to climb the corporate ladder, wanting to strive for um, full authority or um, the title that comes when you lead a, a full organization. But in actuality, um, I've shifted that to wanting to be safe and healthy and mental, emotional, spiritual, physical self and balanced, wanting to be able to live my life with ease um, and just really, really uh, wanting to create a, a place where the things that I do make an impact um, in a positive way for the people that surround me. That's wonderful. And um, I'm a, how old are your children now? They're 11 and 13. What do you do to help them like grow up with the culture that that you didn't have the opportunity to grow up with? It's a exposure. Like uh, some of the best advice I've had has come from multiple places. Um, one of the pieces of advice that my mom gave me was always be calm and always be as excited about whatever it is your kids are excited about. So at a young age, they're excited about rocks. And so you get all excited about rocks, right? Um, as they get older, they find different things that they're excited in and to be just as excited. Um, but for me, part of um, creating that connection is also trying not to layer on and shame. Um, because I know for me, Growing up in a strict Catholic family, growing up in the community I did grow up in, um, I felt a lot of shame. And it took um, decades to get to a point where, you know, I can confidently say, well, I'm going to smudge. My kids will just say that now. They'll say, oh, you're going to smudge today. Can I join in with you? Or can I take part with you? And really um, integrating them into the worlds that I walk in as well. I co-host a, a podcast called Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. So my daughter has been listening to those. And so then we have realistic conversations about um, the world that we live in and what it will mean should she choose, you know, a profession like I chose, engineering, where you're in the minority demographic and how to um, handle situations should they come up. So not painting a picture 
that's not realistic uh, for somebody of uh, First Nations descent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's almost powwow season. Do you have any any powwows that you're planning to attend or any uh, cultural sessions you're looking forward to? Definitely. So I'm still in the beginning journeys uh, of learning cultural practice. Uh, it took a long time to get through those layers of shame. I have a lot of elders and knowledge keepers that I walk with um, through the work that I do and, and just um, in my own support system. Um, this summer is going to be an important one for me. I've never returned to my home community. So this summer I'm going to go for the first time and I'm going to see um, and feel what that's like um, and, and reconnect that way. But part of what I have been um, learning along the way is how to incorporate ceremony as well. So um, I have yet to go to a sweat. I've been to a number of powwows, so I'll go to the ones in the communities that I have a lot of good friends and colleagues in. So um, for sure, we'll, we'll do a bit of the circuit this summer too. Well, it's a, I mean, it's the time everybody is going to be reconnecting and reemerging, right? Because it's in some cases been years since some of this was able to happen. So that seems like a really good timing for you. It is for sure. And um, yeah, I'm excited to just reconnect and, and re-energize in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned having a lot of elders that you walked with. For those who are uh, listening and they're wondering how they can get plugged in or they, they've been through either um, the way they were raised, if they're raised in an urban environment uh, versus not on the land, um, how did you get connected and, and how would you encourage others to get connected? This is definitely an organic process. I mean, there's no yellow pages of elders. There's no um, place that you look up knowledge keepers. Um, you start building relationships with uh, the communities. So for example, you could reach out to a band office or um, a reserve school or a high urban population school, talk with the teachers and principals there, people in there just to um, find out what's going on, go attend events in the community. And just through in community conversations, names will pop up. Um, if you're curious, you could just ask, I'm looking for someone um, to teach me a little bit more about sweats or lodges or these ceremonies, who do you think? And um, having the courage to just reach out and say, you know, this is who I am. This is part of the humility teaching. This is who I am. And um, I don't know very much and I'd like to know more. So approaching with that curiosity and compassion. And a lot of people are afraid to do that, but it that's not really an unusual situation that an elder faces, is it? No, it's not. They're, they walk with such kindness, um, always teaching, always an element of laughter and fun in there. Um, but really also um, the approach that's needed is that curious, compassionate, um, humble approach, but also knowing that you need to honor their wisdom um, through offering um the, the sacred medicines and tobacco or sage or sweetgrass or um, whatever fits that elder um, and offering your gratitude always. One of my favorite lessons on protocol came from elder Joanne Saddleback and she talked about how the protocol is, it's not necessarily for the elder, although, you know, culturally honorarium may be how an elder would support themselves, but it's more about you having a personal investment. It's for to open up your mind when you present the tobacco or the blankets or the or the medicine. That's right. And really approaching with intention, really thinking about, you know, why am I reaching out? Um, what is it that I want to walk into treaty with here with this elder and 
what am I looking to gain? Um, but also how can I show that in a, how can I ask this respectfully um, in a way that honors the person and their wisdom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that goes for everybody, of course, like that's whether you're indigenous or not indigenous. Now, just switching tack slightly, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on where we are at in uh, the project that we call reconciliation. It's almost become a bad word in some places, but uh, what are your thoughts on that, on, on how we're doing? For sure. This is an interesting question. So I agree with you. I don't like the word reconciliation. Um, you know, in my mind, that paints a picture that at some point you can tally it all up and call it even, uh, like, and that's not true. It's been generations and generations of oppressiveness, intentional oppressiveness um, of the, the worst horrific kind, right? So um, we are making progress. It is not fast. It's not always meaningful. It's not always authentic. But there are people who make some great um, headway when they can. We're still very much in an influence advocacy stage. Um, there's a lot of people in that fear zone and denial that there's anything going on. Um, but I find a lot more people are in that learning zone. So they're curious. They know that there's an issue. They're not quite sure how to take that first step. Um, but really, it's talking with them around the truth and the awareness and um, how to how to walk with humility in order to make it about the people who have been suffering and oppressed for generations and generations. And usually that motivates them then to move into this growth zone where they can be allies and voices and advocates and um, listen and provide healing and and um, really be active in their seat at this table of, of reconciliation. Now, because of your background in engineering, I'm also curious, do you ever think about that in a built environment or what reconciliation can look like when Indigenous people build communities for themselves? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think um, I'm trained as a chemical engineer, um, which um, surprisingly has, has not very little to do with chemistry. It's more about process system thinking. And so I think about the systems that we live in all the time um, because I am motivated to make what impact I can um, in terms of of reconciliation. And so when I think about how healthy, safe communities are built, um, what aspects go into that, how can we restore traditional ways of decision-making and um, equality and circle sitting and um, ceremony um, being part and ingrained into everything. I think about the culture shifts that need to happen, um, but it is possible 100%. Um, And for me, uh, the most important thing uh, that people need to know that it, it is possible. This isn't an unrealistic thing. It, it's, it takes a community with the courage and the right leadership, the right partnership um, to see the systems for what they are and walk a different way, write a different piece of legislation or a constitutional act or um, really take to heart the case law that comes out that says, you know what, we all have to take accountability and let's do that. So it's, I see so many gestures of reconciliation um, across this country, that it still keeps me hopeful and optimistic. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Like, of course, you'd be very built for systems thinking. And, and so some concepts that might be challenging for others, it would just come naturally to you because you're used to thinking in that systemic way. Yeah, for sure. And how does it all fit together, right? Like, how does 
our legal system work with the education system and work within the government? And then how do we fund it all? And how do we work within this capitalistic system that's imposed upon us? And um, all of these things, they all tie together um, in a, a complicated way, but it's not so complicated that it can't be navigated nor changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm all out of questions for you. Was there anything you wanted to add that I didn't ask? Um, the only last thought I'd leave with is is just honoring those who um, didn't survive some of the horrific things that happened in this country, whether it's murder and missing Indigenous women, girls, um, residential school, um, children, 60 scoopers, just to honor their spirits that I hope they find their ways home and to send some positive, positive and um, healing thoughts out to the families and to those who did survive some pretty horrific abuses. Um, from my own lived experience, it's hard um, to walk in multiple worlds while you're actively healing. And so um, I see so many elders and knowledge keepers who have healed some pretty horrific things and it it's so inspirational um and so i just want to send that positive thought out to everybody who's doing a lot of healing right now yeah yeah our our old ones often teach us that the healing it starts with us and we 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 the people we are the people who can heal ourselves and we have that ability within us and that they just work to unleash that that's right we are the medicine A sincere thank you to Danielle Paradis for bringing us this story and to Jessica Vandenberg for sharing her time with us. The TEDx U Alberta Conference takes place on May 7th, beginning at 12 p.m. at the Citadel Theatre. If you'd like to hear Jessica's talk, Walking in a Good Way, you can get tickets at tedxualberta.ca under the 2022 conference. We'll have the link in our show notes. And that's where you can also find links to ECF's upcoming granting deadlines and the latest on our blog. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with everyone you know. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.